Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack. Lovely to have you with us. It's episode 55. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington. With me, the Professor, uh, Professor of Public Policy at UWA and Griffith University and the 10 Network's political editor, Peter Van Onsel and PVO. How are you? You never stop, by the way. I see you bouncing <laughs> everywhere. You're on the project one minute, you're writing columns the next year. With us here on this podcast, you're on Channel 10 News. Uh, so it doesn't make much difference to you whether you're in the office or not. You seem to be in permanent motion. But it seems more people are going back to workplaces and offices. Um, yeah, look, they, they definitely are. I mean, for me personally, I actually, you know, obviously, aside from the broader impact of the virus, the, the, the increased tolerance of working from home actually helps me um, in, in what I do because it can make me a little bit more efficient uh, with less travel time and distractions as much as sometimes for your own sanity you want to get around work colleagues as much as anything just for the social effect of that. Uh, the, the staying at home principle, uh, notwithstanding my noisy neighbours and their bloody pool that seems to be an ongoing feature of their life getting installed, you just get more done because there's less travel time, less distractions, uh, and there's an efficiency there. So I think culturally that's a great change uh, if it is a, in, an enduring change from uh, the COVID lockdown. For those of us who can do that, keeping in mind that for a lot of people, the nature of their jobs doesn't require that. And that's partly, I think, your point, You, We are seeing a ramping up of people going back into work. But the interesting distinction is those who have to do it and the economy needs them to do it versus those who are perhaps doing it as an old-fashioned form of presenteeism in the office where it might be more prudent for them to be working from home still uh, from the safety side, apart from, you know, a, a change of cultural attitude side. Yeah, they like to show up. But I notice it, for example, South Korea, of course, it was uh, such an early success story in terms of managing infections. Not anymore. Not getting I know that second going, effect. Yeah. Infections are rising yeah. again. They're reapplying some restrictions in South Korea. Uh, we're just hearing from uh, Daniel Andrews, the Victorian Premier, uh, trying to urge people. I mean, the headline is that he's banning people going back to the office. Uh, plainly, there are still some concerns out there that... Uh, uh, the, the, inevitably, some complacency, complacency comes back in again about the disease itself. Well, and I, my worry about that level of growing complacency uh, or growing angst where people are, if you like, as a result of that becoming complacent, uh, is being driven by the politicians, certainly not the medical experts. He, here's my theory on this. Uh, we've talked about this before. I think the politicians were slow to act in the first place, even though because Australia was behind the rest of the world, we got somewhat lucky and we could learn from the mistakes of places like Italy and Spain and, as it turns out, the United States. So they were slow to act, but they got the job done and they acted quickly enough to avoid it becoming a catastrophe, significantly so. Uh, so full credit to them for that. But they were surprised. Scott Morrison and others were surprised that their initial rhetoric didn't instantly, when it got changed, change people's attitude. He was off to the footy one minute, and then a matter of days later, he was telling everyone how heavy the lockdown would be. And he was frustrated by the fact that people were still not social distancing, going to the beach and all the rest of it. And, and that, I believe, is because there is always a bit of a lag effect on something like that. This is the other side of that. Now the politicians, their rhetoric is to push increasingly hard to open the economy up. I believe they're getting pressured substantially by vested interests, you know, lobby groups whose industries have been so badly hurt by this virus. But I worry that they might be doing it too quickly. I worry that the medical advice perhaps is not now being followed in the way that it once was or indeed the way that it should be now in a rush to solve the economic problems of the crisis. And just quickly, this 
is why I think that's a problem. It's an obvious health problem. The South Korean example is the classic that you raised. You know, they doubled their number of infections from the Wednesday to the Thursday, and it was the highest number of infections in over 50 days. And it was all part of them having moved to a swifter opening up of restrictions. And you risk the second wave and you risk undoing all the good work up until now in a health sense. But just as importantly, people want to open up because they they want the economy to recharge. If a second wave hits and you're forced to lock down again, that will do far more damage to the economy, not to mention the health consequences, than being a little bit more cautious and a little bit slower as you lift the restrictions. So there have been obviously different views, as there will be, between reasonable people uh, on precisely the level to which restrictions should be lifted and so on. There's a medical view on that. There's an economist's view of that. There's a political yep. view of that. Uh, is, it, is it your view that uh, I haven't seen a public breach other than the, the sort of the interstate you know, disagreements about how quickly you do mm. it, whether Queensland should be opening up its borders and, and so on. I haven't seen a public breach on the medical advice. Well, on, yeah, look, really interesting point because it, it, there's been a fine print breach, if I could put it that way. The, the three-stage process that got rolled out um, by the Prime Minister after the last National Cabinet uh, just under or just around a fortnight ago, it, it said, we're going to do it in three stages and each one will be three weeks. Um, now, there was conceptually time between each of those three stages with the next opening up phase to have at least a little bit of time, perhaps a week, to assess the previous three-week chunk of time. But what a lot of people have missed in this is that the fine print of that agreement that the medical experts endorsed, I don't know if it's exactly what they wanted, but they certainly endorsed it. The, the fine print was you in stages one, two, and three, you make changes and you open things up but you don't then make subcategory changes during that three weeks. You need the sample of the three weeks to be consistent and the same so that it can then be assessed for what effect better or worse it's had before then moving to the next round. It's all about building, if you like, a scientific sample as part of your methodology. That hasn't been followed. For example, in New South Wales, within that three-week period, adjustments have happened. The same has happened in some other states. It's been encouraged at the Commonwealth level for further opening up more quickly the splash in the Australian talked about it uh, today being Friday uh, ahead of the national cabinet, presumably fed uh, to the journalist by uh, the, the prime minister's office from the way it looked to have been read by me. So all of that, Hugh, is an example of them not, if you like, following the right process. And it's a shame because one of the benefits of federalism is that they did say consistent three week changes for three stages, but each state can do it their own way. That actually provides a beautiful petri dish uh, to sample and compare and contrast between the states, particularly with their borders closed, even though that's not actually something that the medical advice suggested. You know, we have five separate states doing it their own way. If they hold the line consistently for the three weeks, you get five separate quality three-week samples, but we're not getting that because of their rush to get things open sooner rather than later. And the risk, therefore, is that the assessing of the stages is distorted the medical advice, therefore, perhaps isn't being followed and we have a risk of a second wave because we move too soon. It's funny, isn't it, to, to, to realise that every single one of us is, is a tiny unit in a vast science experiment. It's an economic <laughs> experiment, it's a medical experiment, yeah. certainly a public health experiment that we're in. And, uh, and it is dodgy. But we're hearing from, the, the theoretically at least, the smartest people in the room, Philip Lowe from the uh, Reserve Bank, uh, making his, uh, you know, being interviewed for the uh, 
or, or, or examined by the uh, uh, the parliamentary committee. They're making mm. his opening statement, saying that he thinks it, it you know, there's going to be no quick bounce back out of this. Uh, also, giving a signal that the Reserve Bank is going to keep interest rates, as he calls it, expansion, so very low, uh, pretty much into the never never, saying until there's full employment and and. Uh, uh, and then moving it when they need to keep inflation within two to three percent. Now we're a long way from full employment, so that mm. suggests that he's kind of handing over to a certain degree to the to the government to uh, keep the economy moving because um, interest rates are low. They'll stay low. He's given them that that confidence. But then from the treasurer today, uh, we've talked about this before. Almost inevitably, they've booked that notional $60 billion saving from the JobKeeper uh, not having been taken up as much as uh, the initial figures indicated and Labour and others are saying, right, this is where you bring in the casuals. This is where you expand it to bring in more people. They've resisted that, but a clear signal now from the Treasurer that it is likely to run longer. And he specified uh, the tourism industry and the housing construction industry because they are looking at a longer term setback not one that can be remotely mm. resolved by september is that is that wise and proper and prudent oh look i, th- I think it definitely is and that's also what the reserve bank governor was calling on uh, in that evidence that he was giving before that senate committee i found his intervention fascinating philip lowe because he is highly respected uh, as and he's independent you know as the head of the reserve bank or at least relatively independent compared to a lot of political appointments but his intervention was in the fiscal policy space. I mean, the Reserve Bank is in charge of monetary policy, as you well know. That basically means setting interest rates and if it does or doesn't choose to do any quantitative easing, i.e. printing money, uh, what that really means is buying government bonds, buying the debt that the government racks up and, and therefore doing so by printing money. That's its remit. But fiscal policy has always been the remit of the government's politicians, you know, how they pull those levers. Now, what Philip Lowe has done, he knows that, he acknowledges that, but he's weighed in to the fiscal space in the commentary that he gave before that committee. And he said, the main thing that he said is you have to expand JobKeeper if the economy requires it. You must continue it and potentially expand it. We must have this debate, to paraphrase his words. And he's, we now see, as you mentioned, the Treasurer looking like he's making some soundings in that direction, even though, on the one hand, they're trying to bank the $60 billion save, which is a save of debt buildup, I suppose, because JobKeeper came in at so much less, it turned out, than the $130 billion. But Philip Lowe, in fairness, said that that's a, not a bad thing uh, and that's okay what the government's doing on that front, as long as in the months that come from now, they're willing to expand on it when the need arises at that point in time. So there, he sort of had a bit of a bet each way, but he was strong nonetheless, Hugh, in his commentary about fiscal policy adjustments. And to me, what, what does that say? Well, you know, in a sentence, Philip Lowe weighing in in the fiscal policy space when monetary policy is really his remit. That tells me that the Reserve Bank governor, as an independent, authoritative uh, and credible figure, has extreme concerns about the economy going forward and believes that what does and doesn't happen in the fiscal policy zone is absolutely central to how well or how badly we manage the economic fallout that follows. It's, it's kind of result, an admission that his way. own cupboard is bare, isn't it? Well, that's right. I mean, all he's got, although this is interesting too. I mean, I was trying to get my head around this the other day. Australia builds debt, right? So we, we issue government bonds as our way of 
um, funding debt. So if, if, if we don't have the cash from taxpayers' receipts, and if we build up $10 billion in debt, the government issues government bonds. And they're $10 billion bonds, for example, over a three or a five or a 10 year life cycle. What that means is we get an interest rate attached to that, usually very low, less than 1%, because we've got a AAA credit rating and it's a low interest environment. And who buys that? Well, you know, Saudi, uh, the Saudi government might buy it or, you know, a, a government owned industry out of Singapore, or at the moment, the Reserve Bank jumps in and buys it. Now, how does the Reserve Bank buy the government bonds issued by the Australian government? It does it by just printing money. It doesn't have stockpiles. It just prints more money and then says, thank you very much. I'll acquire those bonds. And then it gets paid by the Australian government, which owns the Reserve Bank. <laughs> it gets paid uh, the interest rate until the maturing of the bond, in which case the Australian government then has to pay the full amount. And if it has the funds to do that, because we're running surpluses, it does it. If it doesn't, it refinances and it takes out more debt, hopefully also with a low interest rate. It feels like a Ponzi scheme, doesn't it? They're printing money to buy debt off the government of the same nation which owns the Reserve Bank. Feels weird. What, how does it work? The only reason it works, yes, there's third parties that control it, so it gets done through the normal banking system. But really, in a nutshell, the reason it works is because we have a AAA credit rating and we're a, credit, we're, we're a credible country. So a certain amount of this with a devaluing of the dollar is allowed to happen. If you do too much of it, though, well, that's when you become Venezuela. When you start printing money to pay your police force or your military, that's when hyperinflation kicks in and it becomes a problem. We're nowhere near that, but it does feel unusual to the ordinary person to hear how the hell does that work, that the Reserve Bank buys debt by printing money from the very government of the very same nation. We'd stop. That's, and, and there are economists, including Australian economists. These have been essentially the heretics within the system, but uh, they haven't yet been proved absolutely wrong that say that, in fact, governments can't run out of money um, they can continue to print it and sell these things. And uh, so long as they're willing to buy them on the secondary market through their reserve bank apparatus, uh, you know. The problem, you though, Hugh, is you know, <laughs> the, the problem, of course, to disprove those economists that there is a limit to this, you actually have to hit that limit and become a banana republic to then prove them wrong. Nobody wants to, to do that. Uh, so they can continue to run the line. It's almost the Bernie Sanders line as well out of the United States. We can just keep printing money because nations don't die. They don't run out of money. I'm not sure I buy into that. They're in the radical well, there's end also, of the there's also a political argument. Yeah, there's a political argument as well in this, isn't there? And that is that we're so now uh, kind of educated on the notion that uh, governments should produce balanced budgets, ideally, uh, although we're, we never mind them going into into heavily into deficit if, if we really feel we need the help as we're in at the moment. But that, that argument about debt and deficit has been so much placed into the political space that if you were to try and get up on a on a soapbox and say, yes, I'm the leader of, of, of uh, an alternative government or of the government. And uh, I've got this idea that we can just print money forever and everything will be sweet. You'd almost well, say- That's what Pauline Hanson once said, wasn't it? <laughs> well, something like that, I think. Yes, uh, as for her tax policies. But look, let's take a quick break. There's a lot more going on in the world right now. Mm. And also very domestically, uh, I want to talk about some of those things. We'll take a very quick break, PVO, back in a second. Hi, everyone. This is Ange Bishop letting you know that if you're stuck in lockdown and looking for something to do after you've watched Studio 10, of course, have a listen to some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Ramsey Beat takes a look behind the scenes of iconic TV show Neighbours as it celebrates its 35th anniversary. 
There's the Husey We Have a Problem podcast, which is the best bits from the fantastic TV show. And our Reality Bite podcasts, Cocktails and Roses and Jungle Nights, for when you're feeling like a reality TV deep dive. While you're at it, give the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast a go. Find them all on the 10 Speaks page on 10Play or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This is episode 55 of The Professor and the Hack. And uh, Peter Van Onselen, you and I are whatever else we are. We're journalists and sad days. Uh, We're seeing journalists losing their Mm. jobs. But significantly, we've seen, you know, getting up towards 100 Murdoch titles uh, will go out of print in the weeks ahead. One presumes permanently never to return. What's the significance of this beyond those people losing their work, do you think, in a democracy? Oh, look, Hugh, this is, in my view, profoundly worrying and significant. Uh, And if ever there's an example of the need for some government intervention, uh, although in a very controlled way because of what I'm about to say, Uh, It's perhaps around some of the issues that the media face at the moment. News Corp, yep, losing dozens and dozens of titles, some going online, some shutting altogether, almost invariably all regional newspapers. Uh, And we've seen a a massive um, reduction in regional news already from other major outlets beyond the banner of News Corp prior to now. So why is this so significant? Well, it's not just the lost jobs of the journalists, as profoundly significant as that is for all of those people in that situation. It's the effect on the fourth estate and its crucial role in a democracy as one of the pillars of a functioning society and a functioning democracy. And let me explain why. You you lose all those jobs in all of those regional newspapers and two things happen. One, that's where entry-level journalists often go. So you finish your degree or you start your cadetship in your more old-fashioned sense, it usually starts in one of these regional areas. Students that I taught in the Masters of Journalism at UWA uh, a few years back, that was where invariably they all started, whether it was TV or print, it often was in those regions. Now, if you're drying up the jobs for the next generation of journalists right from the get-go, you're creating a hole in your workforce, which you know, perhaps is never going to be filled. What does that mean longer term? That's its own problem. The other issue, though, is that at that local government level, those regional newspapers are and were vital in holding local governments to account, and it then trickles up from there. So if there's less accountability of government, if there are fewer journalists, if there are fewer journalists coming through the system because the options and opportunities aren't there for them, that then just rolls on and rolls on, and there's less scrutiny of government, Uh, There are massive cracks and fractures in the fourth estate. And, you know, it was Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, one of the founding fathers of the United States, who, to paraphrase him, basically said, if I have to choose between politicians and newspapers, I'll choose having newspapers any day of the week. He recognises them and he recognised the importance of the fourth estate. And it's really getting eroded by these decisions. And I'm not critical of the media organisations over these decisions. That's the problem. It's a broken model at the moment made worse by a COVID crisis, which is just gutting the sector. But these problems were there before that. Businesses have to be commercial, so they have to close if they can't make money. But it's the profound effect of this on our entire democratic, social and cultural structure that I think people underestimate where this can and might leave us in the years ahead. 
So the argument has been made by the media union, among others, that the government needs to intervene. There are suggestions that the government needs to pump more money into uh, particularly regional uh, journalism. They pumped in about 50 million. As long million. as it's arm's length, you, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, yes, that's true. So that, yes, we'll give you this money as long as you get, we get this kind of result. But there's plainly, there comes to a sort of a, a much more deeper, a much deeper existential question about what government money is there for. And is it mm. there to support um, industries that, as you have just said, are commercially no longer viable? Uh, well, yeah, regardless see, great, of the of the public good that may flow from their news, see that's a great question because, and, and it's a, unfortunately the answer is quite subjective. But it, it for me it becomes about what does or doesn't constitute an essential service when it comes to government subsidies. In principle, I'm you know I, I err on the side of less government subsidies as a starting point rather than more because I, I'm not sure that the long arm of the government should be intervening too much, which is why I quite like the idea of some privatisation. But when it becomes an essential service, that's where you have to ask questions. Now, we've seen lots of once publicly owned enterprises that get privatised, some effectively, some ineffectively, and there are questions around what is or which ones are or aren't essential services and what happens going forward. This is in reverse you know, once upon a time, there was so much money in the media that the barons would flock to it because it was a way to make money. And the journalism was what they were prepared to let those of us interested in it do uh, so that they could then have all those banner ads and classified ads and all the rest of it uh, to make squillions of, of dollars out of it. Now, that that is not as possible in no small part because of changes to the internet and the rise and rise of Facebook and Google and all the rest of it, because that's not a broken business model now to some extent, doubly impacted by the COVID crisis with advertising dwindling, uh, they may need that government support as an essential service. Because I would argue that the fourth estate is deeply essential as a service. It might not be like putting your lights on for your electricity, but what it does, the fourth estate guarantees that when you walk out your front gate, you don't get arrested by police with, by, at, the, at the hands of a tyrannical government, uh, which doesn't care about your individual liberties and rights. Without a free media uh, and without a strong, robust fourth estate, those are the risks of an overreach of government. And it sounds like an overseas thing, but it's, it doesn't have to be an overseas thing. I think people get pretty complacent about this stuff. And another risk, of course, is that particularly in local communities, you tend to get a kind of a boss hog figure um, yep. from the Dukes of Hazard, who, who sort of uh, runs the town, runs the local community, runs all the businesses, uh, can have a kind of malevolent or malign impact, certainly crowds out other contenders that they get to own rather like a feudal lord, some part of the country. We've seen some of those characters turn up in regional Australia and newspapers are, are one of the checks um, against that process, uh, do you do you think that it's justified? Though I mean, that the argument goes is that Murdoch is going to run these papers, essentially having digital reporters, and that there is now social media that can conduct some of this process of checks and balances. Do you think that that actually holds? Oh, I, I'm concerned about that. I mean, yeah, sure, social media can fill some gaps online newspapers can deliver some of what the physical paper can, but inevitably there's less resources and less professionalism if you turn into things like citizen journalism and online news only. And you certainly lose the geographical focus because online news starts to pander and need to 
um, pander to a wider audience rather than a geographically narrow one. And citizen journalism is by definition unprofessional, even though it often provides valuable assistance to working journalists. Uh, it's harder to regulate. And it's certainly harder to fact check. So uh, I'm concerned. You know, I, I don't have a clear solution in terms of how any government intervention were it to happen would help fix the journalistic business model. I've, I've long hoped as I've taught and thought about this over recent years, as we've seen the pressures on, on the fourth estate, that, that a way would be found, whatever that might be um, in a commercial sense, but it's decreasingly looking like that. I think, do you agree? Yeah, not, not, yeah I think commercially it's, it's a very difficult model. Although there's been this extraordinary development that's taking place at the moment in the United States with the spat between Donald Trump and Twitter Donald Trump, uh, Twitter started to apply these uh, fact check elements to Donald Trump's tweets, fundamentally saying that uh, his comments on various things are not to be trusted and directing towards uh, other um, more trustworthy sources to the things that he's saying. Now, now, Trump has reacted to this with an executive order. Uh, the content, the exact text of it hasn't been released as, as we discuss things now. But fundamentally, in the United States, there was, a, um, there was an act that was passed in, uh, in 1996 before social media came up. <clears throat> but it has been applied subsequently. And it's a, called the Section 230. And it essentially means that Facebook and Twitter are treated not as publishers, as a newspaper publisher or a TV network might be, anything which goes up that is posted by members of the public, you can't sue, well, in general sense, you can't sue Twitter, et cetera. You can't, they can't be held account for the truth of what's on their websites. Now, Twitter's weighed in under some pressure to say, well, they need to, going into an election, call out the, the uh, president. He's reacted with an executive order suggesting that those what's called the liability shields against Twitter and Facebook will be reviewed and could be diminished or taken away. Now, if that is the case, then that would end Twitter and Facebook because mm -hmm. Facebook for all its vast value uh, couldn't sustain the number of lawsuits that would emerge if everybody chose to sue on the basis of rude things that people have said about them on, on Twitter or Facebook. So we have at the one time this moment at which we're seeing traditional media collapsing because of largely because of advertising or going off to these social media sites, which have occupied that space and certainly taken all the money that existed in that space. And, and yet at that very moment, you're, we're, we're now seeing a challenge to the existential challenge uh, to those, those models and the, and the US stock market taking a rapid dive uh, when that executive order was, was released to the public. So perhaps there are other chapters to be written in this coming from unexpected places. Yeah, it's a fascinating one, uh, whether that sort of a change makes a bad situation worse or can do something to help revive the fourth estate, even if that's not the intention of Donald Trump. I mean, put his intent to one side because it looks on face value, <laughs> like his intent on this is purely payback to Twitter for having the temerity to fact check his tweets. But He's not going to want to kill Twitter to save the New York Times. <laughs> no, one would well, think. That's right. That's He's more a fan of Twitter than the New York yeah. Times. 100%. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's unintended consequences if there's an upside. Um, but I tend to think that it's more likely that it makes a bad situation worse. The reason being that it doesn't, if you like, deal with the problem that streaming creates for the mainstream media, where people just stream their news rather than watch free-to-air TV or whatever it might be uh, to get their news content. And therefore, they're streaming movies. They're not really watching news. And it has the, an advertising effect. None of that really gets dealt with by what the president's looking at here from what I can see. Whereas 
if you lose these social media platforms, okay, fine. Facebook in particular causes problems for the mainstream media, um, but it also provides a platform for news to be distributed and it also provides a platform for citizen journalists as well, as does Twitter. So perhaps a bad situation gets made worse if Trump was to do that, um, but there is an outside chance uh, that it actually, that, <laughs> albeit unintended as a consequence by Donald Trump himself, uh, that it gives more power back to these traditional platforms that provide the news that I think is so important as part of the fourth estate. Sure enough. Well, look, uh, speaking of press matters, the National Press Club, you were there this week. Uh, we're almost out of time, but it sh- we, we shouldn't go without remarking on this it was a it was a speech by the prime minister of the national press club always an event in itself and the key element goes to uh, what he calls a new approach to industrial relations everyone needs to put their weapons down as he puts it and in the spirit of that he has basically dumped the ensuring integrity bill which was the union bashing bill the deregistering of union the disqualification of union officials if they're found to have breached laws and so on uh, more or less by implication Um, confirming that that law was never intended as anything other than a weapon, because that's one of the weapons that has gone down. What are we going to see emerging from this, do you think? Are we on a kind of a path to a uh, Hawke-Keating-Kelty accord agenda from the 80s and the 90s, or is this just a speech that will disappear uh, like mist fast enough? I think it's garbage. Now, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, This is one of those ones where I'd like to have this replayed, much to my shame. Hugh, um, because I think we do need another accord of some sort to create consensus building in the space of industrial relations with some changes to follow. In practice, however, and I hope I am wrong about this, I think what's much more likely with a liberal government that has a particular ideological view on industrial relations versus a trade union movement largely affiliated with the Labor Party that has a very different ideological worldview on industrial relations, I think this is likely to be more talk than action when the rubber hits the road when it comes to actual decision-making in the post-pandemic period. Yes, it'll still be crisis times economically, and, and ideally there would have been more opportunity for consensus. But most likely, I think, that the ideological differences will be such that they'll be wanting different things. You know, the Liberal Party uh, want, and it's not as ideological as it once was, so that's, in a sense, something that goes counter to my prediction on this because Scott Morrison is not as ideological as John Howard was about industrial relations. You know, he'd probably struggle to be able to take you through much of a history of what's actually happened in the IR space, frankly, uh, whereas Howard was big on it. Uh, So that might mean that they can do a deal, but really ideologically, the Liberal Party and even someone as pragmatic as Scott Morrison, they, they want to return to what was in place before the COVID crisis, whereas the trade union movement, they want changes. They want changes because they think that this crisis has revealed uh, profound deficiencies in workers' rights and protections. And then when you throw in just the reality of politics, which is that the Labor Party aren't going to want to be running around singing Kumbaya, high-fiving Scott Morrison's achievements in the IR space doing deals with the trade union movement, well, Labor's affiliated with the trade union movement. So, oh, so yeah, some would say very... owned by the trade union movement. Um, and so exactly. the, uh, the, the fabled uh, relationship of, uh, of, uh, you know, of friendly engagement, I suppose, it's been uh, presented between Sally McManus from the ACTU and Christian Porter, the IR minister. They will be meeting. They'll be at the centre of this process. Uh, you, you don't think it would be wise to uh, expect too much. Not in the long term. There was a cracking cartoon, Hugh. I don't know if you saw it. I tweeted it. Um, It was Scott Morrison. I think unfairly him, I'd more put a Liberal Party badge than his face on 
on the scorpion. But it was that old fable, the scorpion on one side of the river talking to the frog, and the frog was depicted as the trade union movement. Fast-flowing river. On the other side was the post-COVID prosperity that we need to get to. And the scorpion, Scott Morrison, but I would make it more broad than that, the Liberal Party, saying to the frog, just trust me, let me jump on your back and swim across and we'll both get over there together. And the frog, if you know the fable, as I know you would, the frog should be wary about that because as the traditional fable goes, they get halfway across the river and then the scorpion just bites the frog and the frog says, why would you do that? We're both going to die now. And the scorpion says, well, because I'm a scorpion. That's what I do. And I just can't imagine the Liberal Party not being in a position where once it got at least close to the other side, as it was hoping that we were almost there at the recovery, uh, it was going to be time for it to turn on the frog. And, it, and that goes both ways, frankly, between the trade union movement trying to push for workers' rights and sometimes push too far uh, versus the Liberal Party that has a profoundly different worldview. The frogs and the scorpions are everywhere, uh, particularly the scorpions. PVU, uh, PVU, PVO, a pleasure <laughs> as always. Good to talk to you and uh, stay well. We'll talk to you soon. Do the same. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hey, Husey here. You can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Channel 10's hit show. Well, now there's more to get. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app.